I'll tell you, I was um, so encouraged this morning being up here on the front row. I know most of you think there's not many advantages to sitting on the front row. There are. That one, we have better seats now. So if you've never ventured this far towards the front, you should check out all the new seating that we have. It's super comfortable. But um, the second thing was, it was great to get to hear everyone singing this morning. Um, I I don't know, maybe with the the sun out for the first time in a week, people are just feeling especially vibrant. Um, But it was, I was really encouraged. That last song to hear the love of God was just um, really, really powerful. So thank you and, and good morning. As we we continue, we're going to uh, be in Exodus 14, and let me, let me move, my, move my water for a minute, um, lest you think that that's, uh, you know, a prop, I, I actually need water, I'm not going to do anything special with that, um, <laughs> I may get thirsty, um, but if you, if you turn with me to Exodus 14, that's where we're going to be today, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the, in the center, down the center aisle, and you are welcome to have that if you don't own one yourself. But we're going to continue our march through the book of, of Exodus. And um, <clears throat> despite what Matt said last week, I, that sounds like I'm going to disagree with something that he said in the sermon. I'm not going to disagree with the sermon. I'm going to, I did, I do disagree with one part. He said that last week was the climax that the 10th and final plague was the climax, um, and I have breaking news. This week is the climax. <laughs> so um, congratulations for being here. Um, he was talking about last week, you know, the 10th and final plague being the climax of Exodus, and that is obviously not true to me because they were, the, the Israelites were not yet in exile for most of the book. So how are you going to have the climax of Exodus and they haven't gone anywhere yet? Right. This, this chapter, though, in the moments that we're going to see, I mean, you, it's such a well-known story, the parting of the Red Sea, um, that we've got to take particular care to, to make sure we're getting the right lessons for it, because everybody knows this story. If, you're, if, if you were like me, you grew up maybe watching this, um, watching this movie. Um, if you were, I mean, if we were, like, picking teams based on top five Bible stories, Exodus is probably three, four Something like that. I'm looking at Dave to see if he agrees. Easter, Christmas, you know, rolling away the stones. Somewhere in there, right? Right above David and Goliath, maybe the flood. Exodus is, is up there and specifically the parting of the Red Sea. But I think the, the thing that we pay the most attention to, and that's the parting of the sea, we're, we're only going to sort of skim over today because I think there are some other other lessons. And, you know, the Israelites crossing what should have been a massive body of water, it is a story about the truly amazing things that God can do. Truly amazing things. But what I want to dig into today is how we can follow Moses' command. He commands the Israelites to stand firm. But how can we do that when we are pinned between a seemingly immovable obstacle on one side and the reality of an enemy that would destroy us on the other side. So to, to start out, let's read the opening verses of chapter 14. I hope you found it. And I'm going to read those verses. And would you stand with me in honor of God's word? Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-hahiroth, 
between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. All right, this is the word of God. You can be seated. So before we, before we jump back in, I want to give a quick roadmap for where we're heading. If, and if this is your first time to Trinity, I would um, point you to your worship guide. There's a section on the back where you can take notes. And um, you'll see I didn't put a real detailed outline so that you too could empathize with the Israelites wandering around. And, and hopefully we get to where we need to go. But... But in seriousness, here's, here's kind of where we're headed. I want to I give a little more background context. And then I want to look at um, three obstacles. Three obstacles that the Israelites faced. So that's, that's the first stop. Three obstacles. Then we're going to see why Moses commanded the people to stand firm in the midst of these obstacles. And then finally, we're going to see how God provided a way out and how he continues to provide a way out for us today. So whether you are new Christians or a long-time believer, or if this is the first time that you're hearing about Jesus, uh, the story of crossing the Red Sea, it, it presents a great opportunity, I think, for us to, to truly put ourselves in the Israelites' shoes. And before we get to the obstacles in chapter, in chapter 14, we've got to go backwards a bit to chapter 13. So in the final verses of the preceding chapter, uh, which, which we didn't cover last week, there's a few key details, and so I just want to hit, hit some of the highlights so you've got additional context. So after that final plague, this is when the Israelites put the blood of the lamb over their doors, and their children were spared from death, the death that was wrought upon the Egyptians um, and even the, the animals of the Egyptians. Right? They make a very quick exit, so fast, in fact, that the bread that they're baking doesn't have time to rise. They pack up their things, and, and when they do, Scripture says, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, which would have been a little further north, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Instead, God led the people a different way. He, re- he led them uh, by the wilderness, through the wilderness. He doesn't go the, the obvious way. He leads them by the, by the wilderness because, again, he doesn't want them to, to be nervous about the Philistines' army. Though the text even says that they were equipped for battle, uh, I'll note that what that probably refers to is not, not their armaments, but it refers to the formation in which they were marching. So when you think that they are equipped for battle, it's probably more like they were sort of in, in um, marching formation. They're ready to go and ready to go as this big caravan. These are not soldiers, right? The Israelites at this point are not soldiers. They're not trained. They would have been decimated by the Philistine army. They would have been um, absolutely uh, scared by that. Um, moreover, God knew that, forget about whether or not there was a fight, he knew that they would cower at the first sight of the Philistine army, and so he takes them by another way. So they go a different way, and the Lord went before, before them in what's called this pillar of cloud. It was a pillar of cloud by day, it was a pillar of fire by night, and, uh, and you might think of this as like the first sort of supernatural GPS in history, 
right? And this is, it's leading their way. Um, and, and this is what the scholars would call a theophany. It's, the, it, it's mysterious, but it's a visible manifestation of God's presence. Right? And this, uh, this is a mystery. I'm not going to pretend to know how this worked. Um, but the point I want to make is that the Israelites are not just wandering around aimlessly, you know, where one dune, sand dune, looks like another sand dune. In fact, they're being led by God's presence. It's very intentional. And after a little while... They're turned to camp by the sea. They're, they're, they're told to turn and, and go camp by the sea. And that's where we, the text picked up today in chapter 14. And admittedly, this is not a great escape strategy. Right? And God says as much. He says that by having the Israelites turn around, it's going to make it seem like they are confused and vulnerable. And by the way, they are probably confused and vulnerable. Um, and that's exactly what, what God wants to, to show Pharaoh. Soon enough, and we don't, we don't have a great sense of the timing here. Maybe it's weeks after they first left. Pharaoh and the other leaders are, are sitting around, and you can imagine, they're now sitting around. There's no slaves for them uh, uh, to do the work for them, right? They uh, have lost their firstborn children, so surely they're bitter about that. And they say, what have we done? What have we done that we've let Israel go from serving us? And once again, just as God said would happen, Pharaoh takes up the chase. So now the Egyptians, they've rounded up a thousand or more chariots and they are approaching quickly. And a few weeks ago, we heard about the plague of the the locusts that rose up and they swarmed the Egyptians. At this point, you've got to feel like the Egyptians think, all right, the shoe is on the other foot, right? And they're in hot pursuit of their former slaves. Verse 10 says that the Israelites see the Egyptians coming after them and feared greatly. And it's at this point that the three obstacles show themselves. And the people cry out to Moses. So now let's, let's turn to these obstacles. Because in them, I think we can see parallels for things that we continue to face today. So the first, the, these obstacles in general, I mean, these are problems with unknown solutions, right? It must have feel, felt really uncertain to the Israelites. And, you know, giving Moses the benefit of the doubt, assuming he's listening really carefully to, to God's words that we read a few minutes ago, he still doesn't have a step-by-step plan for what is going to happen next or what he's to do next, right? God said, reading what we just read, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And that sounds good, and, and it is good indeed, but it's not practical, right? It's not actionable. What, is it, what does it mean? Will they, will they change their minds? Are they, were they in pursuit and they're going to change their minds and they're going to turn around? Um, are, is there going to be another plague? If I'm Moses, maybe I'm like quicksand like what's going to happen we, we don't really have a step-by-step you know roadmap but at any rate i mean moses can be sure of one thing he can be certain that god will gain glory he just doesn't know how and so then they hit the first obstacle and it's really the the elephant in the room um, and that's the red sea right it is this massive impassable at this point um, and, and currently in the story, it's ever-present because God himself had the Israelites set their course so that the sea created a border 
on one side, right? And so what might have initially felt like scenery is now starting to feel like a barrier, pinning them in. And when I first thought about preaching from this text, uh, I was really tempted to preach a sermon, you know, all about this, all about God parting the waters and making a way through major obstacles in our, in our life. And I might preach that sermon one day, um, and we all have big things in our life to, to overcome where we need help beyond what we can muster from our, our family and friends. And I'm sure you can think of something in your life that, that seems insurmountable, right? I think about a, a friend who's got a health problem. He's got chronic back pain, and there seems to be no treatment, right? Or maybe a relationship that you have that's just so broken, you don't know where to find the words to repair it. For those of you in school, maybe you've got a a particular class or subject that is just giving you major grief, but you need to do well in that subject to move on to the next level. Whatever your Red Sea is, we can become fixated, I think, on on that thing. Uh, Just like in this story, we can become fixated on the Red Sea because the remedy is so dramatic. And we're going to get to the remedy. And I want you to know that God does intervene and can. He did then and he can intervene in those things now. But the Red Sea would not have been an issue. right? It wouldn't have been such a, a daunting thing for the Israelites were it not for the fact that they were being pursued by their former captors. I mean, if you think about it, if you place yourself there right now, if you were by the Red Sea, it's actually a pretty nice place to be. It's great to have scenery and to have a day out at the shore. So that's not the issue. The issue is what the Israelites are running from, right? And it's how they reacted that's the more pressing matter. And that's where we're going to spend more of our time. And those are the second and the third obstacles that we need to consider, So let's move there. So what I've called the the second and the third obstacles, the second one being Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the third being the Israelites themselves. This is kind of an internal thing. It's the Israelites and their own lack of faith. Again, the things are related, but I'm going to start with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So you've got Pharaoh and the Egyptian cavalry, and this is the real problem. You know, here you've got the the king of of Egypt is pursuing them with his best chariots, even more than his best chariots, even like the JV squad is here, right? He's got all the horses, the full-scale army, and, and that's a bad thing, but I don't want you to get caught up in just what that means when you see them, if you can picture in your mind's eye, when you see that army on the horizon. Don't get caught up in this being uh, one of the greatest military forces in the known world. That, that is a problem, but the bigger problem is what it represented. What it represents is certain death. If not that day, then eventually. Right? Because there in the wilderness, the former captive, captors of the Israelites, they want to reclaim them. Right? Matt, Matt spoke uh, about how a few chapters ago, Pharaoh keeps reasserting his belief that he is the true owner of the people of God. Right? And, and so now in the text, you can feel the action starting to rise because you've got two forces. You've got God on the one hand and you've got Pharaoh on the other and each claims these people as his own and we are going to have a showdown. So I recently read a book um, 
Um, it's very worthwhile, and I promise not to give too much away. Um, there's a book by a guy named Colson Whitehead. It's called The Underground Railroad. Um, and the protagonist in the book is this teenage girl named Cora. And she is born on a plantation in Georgia. Um, you gather this is pre-Civil War, right? She's born on a plantation in, in Georgia, and after her mother leaves, she's left to fend for herself as a slave on this plantation. And, and while some of the slaves seem to eke out kind of a, a relatively stable life on the farm, for her it becomes a, just a personal hell, and eventually she flees. And to be perfectly honest, I hadn't given a lot of thought about the experience of escaping slavery. Um, and I guess I thought of it, 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 to the extent that I thought of it, I thought about there being more like a, I don't know, like a force field or something, and once you get to the other side of the property line, everything is great. Right? And that's, I, I appreciate that that is naive of me, but I just had not given this much thought. And, you know, and if, if really pressed, you know, I'm thinking of more like, isn't this going to be great? And it's like the Von Trapps in the Sound of Music or something, and they're marching across the Alps and singing. Well, that, that, this book dispossessed me of that. Absolutely. Right? After Cora Lee's, after she is, escapes, she lives under constant duress, ever-present risk, right? Ever-present risk because the worst torment on the plantation was reserved for recaptured slaves. And as amazing as the Underground Railroad network was, African slaves were chased throughout the country, through slave states, through free states, by catchers and uh, slave masters who had their own network designed to subjugate people, fellow humans, and abuse them for personal gain, pleasure, and sometimes just the sport of it. Right? And like Pharaoh, those people were effectively screaming out, you come back, you serve me or die. Right? And I'll tell you, friends, it's, it's worse than that. Really, it's you serve me and die. Because once captured, all hope of true freedom is gone. It's gone. So I hope you can see why I think this is a bigger obstacle than the sea itself. The sea would have disrupted and diverted their path and the movement of the, of the Israelites, but eventually they would have found a way you know, to get around. Falling under control of the Egyptians, however, could have only ended one way, in a miserable life that would have ended in a miserable and unceremonious death. Right? It's against that that backdrop that the Israelites' lack of faith, or what I've called the third obstacle, comes into play. So let's, let's dive back into the text. And I'm going to pick up in verse 10. So verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now I want you to note the sarcasm here. I mean, it's like the Israelites have jokes. Never without jokes, it's Israelites. They cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Right? Did you catch that? I mean, what a thing to say. The, the Egyptians told Moses, the guy who risked his own life by going back into a country where he was wanted for murder, the guy who held his staff out over the Nile and it turns to blood, they tell him that it would be better, that they would be better off not only to go back to Egypt, but to um, serve again under the Egyptians. And let me tell you why, this, why I think this is a lack of faith, by considering maybe some alternative responses. Had they been full of faith, the Israelites might have cried out to God for strength. Right? They might have cried out to God for strength in fighting the Egyptians. Remember, they aren't so far removed from the experience of the plagues. Why not pray for another supernatural occurrence? Why not do that? Instead, in full view, remember, of the presence of God in this pillar of cloud and fire, they cry out and beg to go back into captivity. So consider again the experience of slaves leaving the American South. To me, it's crazy to think that a slave on the run would turn back to take up that life again. Right, but that's exactly what we do, and I know that that's hard to imagine. But I said we because we have all been slaves. We've all been slaves to sin at some point in our life. Right, and here's how Pastor Tim Keller puts it. He says, sin contains an element of servitude that in the very act of breaking God's law, there's a reflex action of the human will upon itself whereby it becomes less able than before to keep that law. Sin is the suicidal action of the human will. It destroys the power to do right, which is man's true freedom. Again, here's another opportunity for us to see ourselves in the Israelites as they cried out for a return to Egypt. And if you're a Christian, then you were formerly a slave to sin and I am confident that at some points in your life, you have felt the pull to go back to that old life. And if you're not a Christian, you are still in bondage. D- did you know that by the Civil War, by the time the Civil War started, there were actually more slaves in Mississippi and South Carolina than whites? There were nearly equal numbers of slaves and free whites in Georgia, Florida, Louisiana, Alabama. With those numbers, it sort of makes makes you wonder, why weren't there more uprisings? Why weren't there more revolts? There's a couple couple reasons. I mean, fear inhibits progress, right? The unknown is scary. Um, But I think there's more to it than that. When it comes, as we internalize this, when it comes to returning to our personal hell and a life of bondage in sin, the answer for many people is this. I choose the shackles. So what sin do you return to? I challenge you to give that some reflection this week. Ask one another about it during small group. Whatever that struggle is, and we've all had them. Hear, that, hear me say that. 
whatever that struggle is. To cry for a return to bondage is to evidence a lack of faith in God. Right? It evidences a lack of faith that God can, in fact, make a new way. And this is why Moses had such a forceful response to the Israelites when they complained to him. So let's turn to that now. So in verse 13, Moses uses the words that served as the, as the title for this sermon. It says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. I love it, right? I love it. The people are just, I mean, they're crying out. And mind you, they had genuine reason to be scared, but they are crying out, you know, and sort of, you know, being a bit whiny. Oh, Moses, we would have been better off if we would have stayed in Egypt. And he sort of says, really? That's what you think? You think you would have been better off if you stayed in Egypt? What are you going to learn today? Right? He says, y'all don't even need to do anything. You just need to be quiet and the Lord will fight for you. And I'll tell you, friends, find yourself a friend like Moses who will tell you to be quiet and let God fight for you. Right? Sometimes that's what we, that's what we need. Don't, don't look for friends that will join in the chorus of complaints with you. Find yourself a friend like Moses. And just like in the previous chapters, first with Moses' own rescue as a, as a baby, later with the burning bush, communicating with Pharaoh, all throughout the plagues, God is the main actor, and he acts on behalf of the people he calls his own. The Israelites, we sometimes refer to them as the the people of the children of the covenant, because they knew that God had promised to protect them. And they didn't have to go back very far to see the hand of God in their lives. You look, of course, at the plagues, and as Matt showed last week, where the Egyptians were subject to darkness and hunger and death, the people of God were protected. So when Moses tells his people to stand firm, it's because he knows that God's provision is coming. Right? He hadn't yet, if you look at the order of, of the text and the communication, he hadn't yet conferred with God. But he knows counting on God is a sure thing. Right, and that's where I'm going to turn next, is, is God's response and his provision. And so, so now, at this point in the story, we're really on the cusp of the, of the big-time action. This is the best-known, these are the best-known parts of the Red Sea story. And in some ways, again, we knew it was coming because back in verse 4, God said that he was going to have glory. And that's not an empty threat. Right? It's a promise one that was already backed up by earlier experiences during the Exodus story. And and we've been looking at what I call those three obstacles. So now we're going to focus on two specific ways that God provided for his people. It's the plan and the personnel. The plan and the personnel. First, the plan. We didn't know the specifics, of course. Moses didn't know the specifics, but God had a plan from the beginning. I'm not going to walk through every instance, but I'll just do a flyover of, of how God is working things out you know, to, and, and bringing his plan to fruition. He, you're going to see a pattern. He tells Moses what he's going to do, and then he does it. He says, I'm going to bring one more plague upon Pharaoh in Egypt, and afterwards, he'll let you go. Right? And then, what? God makes it so. 
Right? Later, he gives Moses detailed instructions on how to commemorate Passover, instructions that include eating unleavened bread to remember how quickly they had to get out of Egypt. He gives these instructions before the Israelites leave Egypt. And then what happens? God makes it so. Right? Today, we've seen that God sent the Israelites out into the wilderness, away from the Philistines, before changing their, their route. He leads them by the pillar of cloud, uh, by, by day, this pillar of fire by night. Later, God uses that same pillar to, as a shield. It, it, it's behind them. It blocks his people from the Egyptians. The Apostle Paul would later remember this amazing occurrence of the, of the shield sort of moving behind in his letter to the church in Corinth. He wanted them to remember that their forefathers were all under the cloud, meaning they were protected by it before passing into the sea or through the sea. And amazing as, as all that is, right, these, these instances are, are um, sort of beyond comprehension. The point isn't to stand in awe of God's power. It's to appreciate that he is being proactive the entire time, right? There's some religions and the Egyptians would have been included in this, that they worship a multitude of gods because every time one god fails, they, they need to conjure up another to explain the shortcomings of the first. Well, Israel served the one true God. By his design, he was going to have the glory all to himself. It doesn't mean that he's, he's a simple God, though. It doesn't mean he's, his plans are easy to understand. On the contrary, I have a lot of questions about how and why certain things unfolded the way, the way they did. Right? It's a little bit uh, in, in our house on Friday nights, we've got this experience where often one of the girls will uh, start asking, what are we going to do tomorrow? And we say, oh, it's going to be great. We're going to have lots of fun. And that's like a mistake because it's a, it's a goal with no details. We're going to have lots of fun. And then, oh, are we? Is so-and-so going to come over our house? Are we going to do a puzzle? Are we going to paint? Are we going to go to Adventure Science Center? Or, I don't know. But that's exactly how I am with God, right? I want to know the details of the plan without, uh, uh, without doing what I should do maybe, and that's just trusting. The fact is we don't understand God's ways, and, and frankly, he doesn't need our counsel. We look to another book of the Bible. God has a great conversation. Well, it was great for God. Uh, with a man named Job, and he asked him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. Tell me if you have understanding. Right? And it's that sort of thing that you've got to think that Job kind of looks and goes, 10-4, God. Good talk. Right? God hasn't handled. Since the beginning of time, he's been executing a plan to bring glory unto himself because he alone's worthy of it. And, and in this scene in Exodus, he's putting all the pieces together. And the final piece in his plan would be the man that would serve as a bridge between him and the Israelites. So some of you may be familiar uh, with, with the book Good to Great. And that, that book opens with this concept called First Who?, the idea that you focus, before focusing on details of a project or a business or something, you get the right personnel in place. And in this case, Moses is like employee number one. Right? He is the right personnel for the right time. Moses himself, he's the representation of the Israelites before God. So that God hears their cries through Moses. Right? 
And by the same token, Moses brings direct instructions from God to the people of Israel. So did you catch in in verses 10 and 11, the text says that the people cried out to the Lord. And the very next sentence says that they complained to Moses, right? Moses is, he's a necessary um, intermediary between God and the people. He's bridging that relationship and he's, he's creating a focal point through which God would act. Moses hears the cries of the people and he tells them to stand firm. Then the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Now remember, he's the mediator for the people of Israel. So that rebuke really isn't, it's not meant for Moses. It's it's meant for the people of Israel. Why do you you cry to me? And he's essentially telling them, now is not the time for complaining. It's time to move. And, and once again, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to be the one. Specifically, God then tells Moses to tell the people of Israel to go forward. I'm sure Moses' head is still swimming a little bit, like forward into what? Into the Red Sea or forward into the pillar? Like, there don't seem to be great options here. Thank, thankfully, God doesn't stop there, right? And you know the instructions that come next. God tells Moses to once again lift his shepherd's staff, stretch his hand out over the sea and divide it, which is to say that God is going to divide it. And so here we are now 30 minutes in and we finally get to the parting of the waters in the Sermon of the Red Sea. Um, But as Moses is performing, you know, this action, the pursuit of the Egyptians, it's been obstructed. I mentioned it's been obstructed by God's presence in that pillar of cloud Scripture tells us that a strong wind blew all night from the east so that the sea dried up. And if you're really interested in that phenomenon, there's a lot of study and research on how that may have happened. It's all, um, I'd say it's a little dissatisfying. This wasn't low tide, though, right? This wasn't the people of Israel sort of shuffling out to a a sandbar, God said that he would have the glory and one way for him to have the glory is through these acts that cannot be easily explained. So sometime around daybreak, the Egyptians, they see that the Israelites are escaping by going through the Red Sea and they continue the chase. Afterwards, the Lord looks down on them. He throws them into some state of confusion and for whatever reason, the chariots begin to slow down. And eventually it's the Egyptians now that realize they need to escape. They realize they're the ones who are in trouble. They say, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them. Then God gives Moses the green light once more. He holds the staff up, the water returns, and this is not a pretty scene. And you may may wonder, I did, why didn't God just soften Pharaoh's heart? Why didn't he ever soften Pharaoh's heart? Wouldn't that have avoided so much destruction? So it's a sidebar. So two very quick things about it. One, say Pharaoh and the Egyptians absolutely bear responsibility. They had a change of heart and they wanted to pursue uh, the Israelites again before God's intervention. The second thing that we need to appreciate is that God's justice will be complete. A holy God is not one that is constantly carving out exceptions for people, not even those in power. 
And so hats off to Moses. He obeys God's directive. He, uh, Moses and that staff, they have been through a lot at this point. Right? But he obeys God. The water comes rushing back in. And, the, and there's nothing that God can't do, right? And that, that's amazing, but he's got something greater in mind. And chapter 14 closes with verse 31, which reads that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So, that, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So not only was he using this entire scene to make the people of Egypt realize that God fights for them, Right, fight for the people of his own choosing. God is using the experience to grow faith in himself. And so Moses, uh, it, it's, as it says, it, the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And Moses is known as one of God's greatest servants, but one greater was to come. And that's where we're going to finish today. So in the New Testament, the, the letter to the Hebrews says that Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Friends, Jesus has been counted far more worthy than Moses. Right? He is worthy of all the glory, not just as a, as a sort of having a bit part in this dramatic play. We're going to close with the idea that just as Moses was interceding for the people of Israel and leading them through the Red Sea, we have an even greater leader and savior in Jesus. And so I want you to consider the parallels there, the parallels between what Moses did and what Jesus came to do. Got a man who was spared from death as a baby, grows up to lead people out of bondage and into the promised land. That could be either one of these. Right? By the time we pick up their story here in the 14th chapter of Exodus, the Israelites are they're once again being pursued by an enemy that will surely enslave and kill them if caught. The only escape, it's far beyond their power until we get this mixture of natural and supernatural and human components, and it comes, they combine uh, to create a, a better path, right? Now, just imagine if we could be like a, a time-traveling reporter and we were there reporting live from the, the western shore of the Red Sea, interviewing an Israelite. They might say something like this. They might say, you know, just a little while ago, I was a slave. And try as I might, I could not break free from the power of those forces. Until this man came along and told us that if our house was covered by the blood of the lamb, we could escape. And he was right. And even after that great sacrifice, again I found myself being pursued because that same evil, it wanted me back. It wanted to claim me and I was ready to give in. But that man, by the power of God, did the impossible. He made a way where there was none. And here I am, rescued, redeemed. If that's not a great metaphor for the saving power of Jesus Christ. Like, I don't know what is. A note, if you are a new Christian especially, I want you to know that the promised land wasn't right on the other side of the sea. There was still a journey ahead and it was not without difficulty. Yeah. 
When you first come to faith, you should feel great relief. I mean, tremendous relief because by God's grace, you've been reconciled with him. But you should also know there's more to come. So I want to encourage you that as we've seen today, the difficulty of your circumstance, it doesn't mean that God's not present, right? Quite the opposite. As Moses would say, you've got to stand firm. And, And beyond that, let's stand together in that. So anyway, since that time... You know, thousands of years ago, the Jewish people, they've commemorated these experiences. They remember the captivity from whence they came. They remember the parting of the sea and the hardship still to come. And those things are worthy of remembrance, just as we're doing today. But it's the promise of new life. New life. When I was condemned to death, that's what gives me assurance. And that only comes through faith in Jesus. No longer do we remember Moses holding a wooden staff over the sea, but instead we remember Jesus hanging on a wooden cross. Amazing as it was, we no longer counted victory to merely march across the seabed. Now we can be counted among the saints marching into glory. The story of the Israelites in the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, it's another story that confirms a pattern for us even today. God delivers us from danger when we were stuck with no hope of saving ourselves. God, through Christ, provides a way to cross from certain death to certain life. It was as true then that God did it. He provides that way as it is now. So I'm going to say it again. When we were stuck with no hope of saving ourselves, God, through Christ, provided a way to cross from certain death to certain life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to make a way for us. When we were lost in our own wilderness of sin, when we were conscripted to eternal separation from you, Recovered by the blood of Jesus, a spotless lamb, and reconciled to you. Lord, may that truth be forever at the front of our mind. I pray for those who are in the midst of the battle, feeling the pull of a life of sin, and at the same time the draw to the cross. May we all choose life and stand firm with Jesus. Amen.